Hi folks, the topic of this week's show is the fallout of the Royal Commission. I've talked about the Royal Commission quite a bit on the show and the interim report has now been released. It is certainly damaging and rehashes a lot of the horrible testimony we saw over the last nine months. But the report itself asks more questions as opposed to giving answers. That might be in the final report which is due early next year. The questions we discussed today is, is it going to lead to lasting changes in the way we bank? I have a chat with a Finance Hour favourite, Michael Chu, about all the issues. In Ruben's rant, my question that I ask is, is it so bad charging dead people money? Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi folks, welcome to the Finance Hour. You may be listening live on Jair on the podcast. This show makes sense of the world of business and finance and hopefully helps you make better decisions. My name's Ruben Zell, I'm a financial planner and this is show number 50. So it's a big celebration show. I don't have a huge amount to celebrate with, no huge getaway giveaways or anything like that. But nonetheless, I appreciate you listening and I encourage you to listen to any one of the previous 49 shows. The best way to do that is subscribe on iTunes. You can scroll through them or you can go to my website, Adapt Wealth, or you can even go to the JA website. They've got all the podcasts there as well. Well, today we're talking about uh, the Royal Commission. I've talked about this before, the Royal Commission into Financial Services. It's been going on for a while and the Commissioner has just produced what he calls an interim report. So I'm going to be speaking to a colleague of mine, Michael Chu, uh, who's been on the podcast before. Michael Chu uh, works uh, with his brother at a financial advice firm called Orange Wealth. Uh, we catch up every now and then, and I'm always interested in hearing Michael's views and see if they agree with mine. Anyway, that's uh, that's the topic of the show. But before we get to that, speaking to Michael, it is time for Ruben's Rant. Ruben's Rant. Now, my rant this week is about charging fees to dead people. Now, a lot of uh, headlines have come out of the Royal Commission in the newspapers saying that uh, dead people are still being charged for things like superannuation, investment accounts, and in some situations, even for life insurance. Now, obviously, there's a big problem with people being charged for life insurance when they're dead, although it's possible that it could be due to an administrative issue. That is that they, the insurance company hasn't been informed of the death. Nevertheless, obviously, premiums should be with should be repaid, refunded. But what I'm talking about is, you know, people complaining about uh, other kind of fees and costs being charged to dead people. Now, look, just when someone passes away doesn't mean that any service or any product that they're using completely stops and that the costs go away. Uh, we have a concept here of an estate. When someone passes away, they're no longer alive, but they've got an estate, and that estate uh, continues to be a tax entity. Uh, certainly, there are fees that are charged to it, accountants charge fees, uh, lawyers charge fees, uh, someone who might be the executor of the estate charges fees. So the, the fact that you can't charge an estate any fees is actually completely incorrect. And what if the estate, taken to the logical endpoint, if you can't charge any dead people fees, what about if someone's got a loan on foot? So they've got a loan that they owe a million dollars, they pass away, they still owe the million dollars. Should the banks be stopping to charge interest on that? 
So I suppose my point is charging fees to dead people. Of course we shouldn't be doing that for life insurance. Uh, but the headlines of that there should be no fees charged to an estate at all is simply ridiculous and does not stack up. Okay, we're going to take a quick short break and then I will have Michael Chu on the phone. Okay, we are talking about the Royal Commission report. Uh, I've got uh, my good friend and uh, fellow financial services uh, person, Michael Chu, on the phone from Orange Wealth. Michael, have I got you? Hey, Ruben, how are you? Good, mate. Very well, very well. Well, look, I've talked a bit on the show about the Royal Commission. Uh, now, just recently, obviously, the circus has been going for about seven or eight months now. And uh, the Commissioner, Ken Hayne, and his army of lawyers have recently come out with their report. What's well, called an interim report. So they're not actually you know, telling it, saying what legal things should be put in place or regulations. They just seem to be asking a whole lot of questions and just rehashing a whole lot of stuff that's been in the Royal Commission now. So I wanted to have a chat with you about some of the things that they've said. As I said, I think a lot of it's not new. Um, but I'm interested in your in your feedback. Yeah, I haven't I haven't gone through the interim report. I think did it came out Friday. It's, yeah, um, I think it might have been last, last week. Sometime. I haven't gone through it in detail, and I have um, I've kind of gone up and down about how uh, closely I've followed the Royal Commission. I followed it very closely at the start, and some of the yeah. stories were a bit too difficult for me to continue to. Yeah, you um, ma- it made you to read day in and day out. Correct. Correct. Look, uh, I think it's a yeah. It's like watching a car crash, really, isn't it? That's how I, I found pretty it. Pretty horrible. Yeah, I it's horrible for the people who were involved. And I'm I, I'm I'm not going to kind of uh, re 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 describe some of the stories, but there are some pretty um, yeah, there's some pretty bad uh, experiences and outcomes for for the people in the community. Um, I think. Just as a general statement about the Royal Commission, I think it's definitely something that we needed. Um, and uh, the outcomes of it for the long-term sustainability of our industry, I think, will be uh, hopefully quite positive. Mm. Um, in particular, um, we'll have consumer protection in place and um, it will bring rise to new models for servicing uh, for servicing people with their financial needs, which um, may not exist today um, because of... Mm. Well, I mean, my concern partly has always been, I mean, it's a Royal Commission into misconduct into the banking and financial services. So it's specifically only looking at the misconduct, only looking at the things that aren't working. And my fear has always been that if that's all you're looking at, if you're not looking at what is working, you can end up with, with regulations and rules that are counterproductive, you know, and, and all we've heard about is the bad things. Now, I get that. I get that's why you need a Royal Commission because obviously it's been determined that there are systemic problems. But I do get concerned that we're going to end up with over-regulation, uh, whereas current regulation hasn't been enforced. So, look, I want to speak about a couple of things that have come out. I mean, first of all, obviously they've bagged the crap out of the banks uh, and the yep. insurance companies, AB. I mean, there's nothing really new about that. I mean, they copped yep. an absolute pounding in all the interviews, and, uh, you know, they're on the deck, and, you know, they're still being punched in the face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I heard a stat 
uh, about the number of submissions. There's like close to 10,000 submissions, 9,000 submissions for the Royal Commission, which is, yeah, that's, that's massive in terms of public submissions. Mm. More than 60% of them were about banking. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, that, it's not surprising that that has garnered the majority of their focus, and it's quite a political topic as well. So, um, uh, yeah, um, the banks, yeah, the banks need to lift their game. So I think that's, I think that's makes make, makes heaps of sense to me. And one of the things is is that on that specifically, I mean, I know that you and your business, you guys do a bit of mortgage broking. Uh, I don't. I work with uh, other mortgage brokers. But one of the things that have come out, and it's been an issue for a while, is the way that banks or mortgage brokers assess people's ability to pay a loan, which in turn determines how much they can borrow, right? So obviously in the past, you know, going back a few years, you know, people would just sort of say, oh, yes, you know, my I spend five grand a month regardless of what they did spend. Then they introduced something called a household expenditure measure, which was basically a, you know, some kind of benchmark from some kind of studies about what people spend. It often doesn't, you know, doesn't coincide with the reality of the particular person. Um, now, obviously, since the Royal Commission, banks have started to, um, you know, crack down on it. And from what I understand that, uh, you know, people's borrowing capacity has dropped. According to a UBS report, it's around 10%. Um, but now the commission, the Royal Commissioner has actually said he doesn't think that that household expenditure measure, that benchmark, should be relevant at all. Or he, he sort of poses it, he poses a question, should it be relevant? Uh, should we be looking more at people's actual expenses? But according to UBS, there's a risk that people people's borrowing capacity will drop by another 20%. I think... UBS are probably on the money. Um, but let me take a step back before I answer the question. The reason why household the, the expenditure is in the spotlight is because people who probably shouldn't have been put under pressure, mortgage pressure, are under mortgage pressure. And the reason for that is because of the way the industry is incentivised, which is commission-based. So mm. um, mortgage brokers are essentially incentivised to sell mortgages and uh, the more mortgages they sell, the more they earn. Um, so that can lead to practices that kind of, um, in some cases, and I'm not saying this about the whole industry because I don't think that's the case, but in some cases that's meant that um, people have got loans that where they shouldn't have, mm. uh, they shouldn't have received. Well, the only thing I would say, the only thing I would say to that, Michael, is that you know, a lot of people will go to you know because the housing market's been so hot, a lot of people will go to mortgage brokers and say what's the absolute maximum I can borrow um, so that I can get into the housing market? So, you know, on one hand, yes, you can say the incentive of the mortgage broker is to maximise it, but, you know, let's not forget that people are coming to them, you know, trying to borrow as much as they can as well. It's not just them, you know, pushing it. It's a chicken and egg thing, right? So I think one of the, one of the outcomes of people being able to borrow already, which is today, regardless of what happens with recommendations out of the Royal Commission, is that it reduces the amount of capital in the market, and that mm. has a softened effect on prices. And and the inverse is true as well, which is what we've probably seen for the last few years, where if there's a lot of capital in the market um, because people can borrow high amounts of money, it uh, creates competition and pushes house prices. Mm. So that's not the only factor of house prices, but I think it's definitely... My opinion is that um, house prices softening at the moment. A big factor in that is... Um, is borrowing, um, mm. is changes to borrowing limits. 
coming back to that household expenditure, uh, um, the most recent change I'm aware of is that banks have now started... Um, um, they're, they're using a household expenditure amount based on your income. So mm. I think um, there's some common sense there. If you are earning 100000 um, it would be fair to say your base expenses are in a certain range. Mm. But if you're earning 400000 your base expenses are going to be higher. So banks are, uh, uh, some banks are moving towards that where they're, um, where they're adjusting the, the base household expenditure to the income bracket that you're in. Mm. Um, and then other banks, I know that there's definitely banks out there, they're asking for three months' worth of um, mm. statements to actually validate what clients put in their um, household expenditure but, um, to yeah. make sure it's right. Well, the interesting thing with all that is is that you think you know, all these online lenders now, basically what you do is when you're applying, you authorise them to access your internet banking or your financials or your software of some description if you're a business. And they just sift through and make the assessment really quickly. I mean, there's no reason why the banks can't do that themselves. I mean, you just give them... Obviously, if you've got well, any accounts you've got with that bank that you're borrowing is there, but there's no reason why they couldn't just ask you to, you know, you know, your, your login details for your other thing and just sift through it as well. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, mm. and that, that might be where it goes, I think. Um, I suspect that might be where it goes. I don't know who the burden is going to be on to prove their expenses, whether it's mm. the client or the... Mortgage broker in that case, or the bank. I'm not really sure. It might be all three, but um, I suspect that's where it will go. And um, yeah, for a while, that will have put pressure on um, the amount of borrowings that people can have. Yeah. Uh, if house prices fall as a result, and they may, then it kind of balances it. So it would be. This, this is going to be an interesting one to see what, what the impact is. Mm. Uh, and, and of course, for banks, if they're lending less money, they're probably making less profit. So. Um, that's I don't know how right. they'll deal with it, but they, but they they're already reacting um, by making some of these changes ahead of the mm. what they think might come out of the royal commission. Well, look, I mean, all of us in the financial services area are going to be going through some pain. Um, you know, I do think mortgage brokers are going to go through quite a lot of pain. From what I could see in the royal commission, you know, the banks, um, you know, what he suggested the commission was that the banks are responsible for what the mortgage brokers, what information they provide. So, in other words, the banks are going to have to, you know, crack down even harder on the mortgage brokers, almost, you know, you know, take it to the worst extent, almost as though they're employees and really kind of be enforcing how their business is run. Uh, I think that's a big risk for the mortgage brokers at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right, you're right. I think... Um the financial planning industry has had a lot more regulation compliance mm. burden than uh, the mortgage broking industry. Uh, mortgage broking is definitely seen as more of a transaction, um, but yeah, the burden the burden will will increase in that industry, and the cost of running that type of business will, will go up as well. Mm. Well, it's going to be interesting. As you say house prices come down, you know, people can borrow less. You know, is that going to affect building? Is that going to affect other parts of the economy? Uh, it's yeah. interesting, you know. The, the, you know, it's possible that this affects. You know, the, the, they'll put regulations in, but it could affect the broader economy, not just, not just the financial services area. Yeah, I think it's got a couple of years to kind of play its course. Yeah, it will. It it'll be interesting to see in two years' time if we're having this conversation where it's settled on what it's, what it's meant for things like housing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's, let's see. Yeah, that's true. Well, the other thing also that happened in this uh, report is that ASIC copped an absolute pasting as well. 
for being a toothless regulator. You know, instead of actually enforcing things and taking people to court, they claim that, you know, they just, you know, agree with these weak, uh, enforceable undertakings. Uh, heads have started to roll there already. Peter Kell, I think was the deputy chair or whatever that means, uh, he's resigned uh, with, he had about eight months to go in his contract. Um, but yeah, so I think they've been pasted. I think, you know, maybe the positive for them is that there's a good chance they're going to get a lot more funding um, to get out there and do their job. And they're going to, you know, now they're going to be pushed to really go for scalps to go hard. And we've actually seen a few uh, a few actions that they've that they've put on to different you know f- banks and financial advice firms after the Royal Commission. Yeah, I, I think um, you're right. If you have a law and it's not enforced or police, then it's not really worth much. Mm. Um, and you talked about higher regulation, which is essentially you know, new laws that um, that require uh, financial services businesses to, to that, that you know that are required to comply with it. But if if either the penalty of that of not complying is less than the benefit of you know um, ignoring it, or they're not enforced at all, then they're not really worth much. So that that that's definitely a change that will come through, and that mm. that's gonna. I suspect that will weed out some of the the bad eggs in the industry. Mm. Um, but the question is, is, yeah, it's become so political. You know, I don't know. They'll just be going for these scalps. You know, they'll. Will they end up going for easy targets because that's where they can get the wins and the biggest bang for their buck? I don't know. Yeah, is it just going to create? Na- you know, the, the, they said they've been gun shy, but is it going to make them trigger happy now? I don't know. Well, you, like there was a big license, license called Dover yeah. that kind of went under recently, and I my uh, understanding of it is that through this Royal Commission process, um, the owner of that license. Um, you know, he was the person that collapsed at the Royal Commission, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they had to they had to take him away. And ASIC were already investigating him, but soon after his appearance, they um, they must have gone in pretty hard, and that license closed as a result. So yeah. um, that that affects lots of people, though, right? So the and now they're taking him to court as well now, which I can't understand. I mean, the guys agreed to be out of the financial services industry, but they're still taking him to court. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Mm. Um, so who does this all impact? I think um, I think if there's laws that should be in place, then they should be police. Um, but the more laws you have and the more policing, the more burden there is for compliance on the, on the, the financial services business, mm. uh, the higher the cost of those businesses, and I think then the harder it is for your average Joe to get advice on the street. Um, one of the big challenges I have with um, lots of stuff that um, is being talked about in the industry is that it kind of pushes advice up to higher net wealth people mm. uh, or people on higher salaries because it's quite difficult to give advice cheaply. Well, what's also um, an interesting thing that's come out, right, is that there's, you know, obviously giving in, in advice, giving insurance advice, for example, is a very, you know, costly, you know, heavy thing to do, right? You've got obviously to do a needs analysis for a client, you've got to do advice, you've got to shop around to different insurance companies. I mean, people, you know, unless you're in the industry, people completely underestimate what's involved. So because yeah, of the difficulty yeah, of it, totally there, there's been a lot of those sort of online sellers of insurance, you know, you know, the I things advertised on television or I select where you, they only just give general advice. And, you know, in, in part, you could say they came up because, 
you know, the cost of fund, you know, it, it, it can be quite a long, difficult process for a financial advisor to give insurance. So they've tried to make the process easier. But it's interesting in the Royal Commission, you know, all those direct insurance sales businesses, or a lot of them, actually also copped a massive pasting because they said people ended up with products that they shouldn't have ended up with. So, you know, now that general advice space where us advisors sort of complained about quite a bit because we said, you know, they've got, they don't comply with any of the obligations that we do, yet they do it more cheaply, obviously, they've also copped it big time. So I wonder if it's going to have a change a little bit to that side of the market as well. I think the worst thing that one of the one of the more negative outcomes that could come out of the Royal Commission for for, um, for consumers is that they can't achieve advice. So even on something as as um, clear as insurance, which is a, a a product and it's solving a specific problem, if consumers can't easily get advice on it, then they're left to their own. And we all know that there's heaps of information on the internet, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know what to do with it or how to apply it. So, mm. um, uh, yeah, I, I am, I am, I think, I, I think we don't as an industry offer enough advice for, um, uh, cheaply enough as it is. Um, mm. and I think this is going to make it, I think it, it has a, it has an opportunity to make it significantly worse. Mm. Yeah. Um, look, the other thing which he questioned a lot was, uh, vertical integration. So for those of you that are listeners who don't know what that is, that's basically we have uh, a license holder, for example, like a bank who not only uh, you know, have investments under their banner, so they create their own investments, but they also have financial advisors as well. Uh, they've come, uh, and that's, just, that's not just across banks, that's across a whole lot of other way financial planners operate, whether it's insurance companies or being owned by platform providers or whatever that is. Um, they've you know, that's been a hot topic in the industry for quite a while, but um, what the Royal Commission sort of came out and said that, you know, that vertical integration, particularly the way it played out in the banks, uh, has been a big problem. Uh, and, you know, there's a question mark whether that will need to be severed. In other words, will product, you know, manufacturers be able to own advice as well? So, I can call it for you. I think the days of uh, advisors working for a bank are gone. Mm. Um uh, there might be other entities that they work through which are regulated separately, but um, uh, no longer can... Uh, I, this, is not, this is not true today, but it will be true, I believe, in the future. No longer can you be the provider of superannuation products or investment mm. product and give the client advice to purchase that product. I think those days are gone. When you're talking um, about pure employees, uh, what about, you know, when, you know, dealer groups? So, you know, that's where, like, a bank... Like Commonwealth Bank might own, you know, not just the employee advisors, but they might own a group called, or something, for example, like Financial Wisdom, where advisors yeah. effectively run their own businesses, but that that sort of head licensee is still bank owned. I mean, the question is, is that going to survive as well? I don't think that will. I don't mm. think that will. I think the licensees might survive on their own, but they have to. They have to. It has to make sense for um, for that license to exist. Under its own model, mm. if we take a if we take a step back, the reason why banks have financial advice arms, whether that's you know your example financial wisdom through CBA, is because they've got products that they want to distribute, mm. and clients want advice on which products, or they want advice around finance, and products comes into that. So, um, if you if you if you go back uh, to when you know NAB bought MLC as an example, the reason they bought it, I'm sure, was because they have 
um, financial products that they want to distribute through that mechanism. Absolutely. Um, now, you can already see the banks scurrying to get ahead and divest themselves of these um, of this, pro- this part of the problem. CJ has announced that they'll set up this new entity. I mm. think they plan on calling it Colonial First State, um, <laughs> uh, or at least that's the report that I read. Yeah. And that will include um, people like Aussie Home Loans. It'll include you know, Financial Wisdom with the, the licensee that you mentioned and other licensees, as well as the... Um, as well as the products, um, the financial advice products like Colonial First State, yeah. the superannuation product or investment product. So they'll hide um, that so onto another entity. That's that's going to become a entity. Yeah. It's only listed separately on the stock exchange. Yeah. MLC has been trying to uh, NAB has been trying to divest itself of MLC. ANZ has um, has closed some of their wealth arm or sold it off. Um, yeah, but that, uh, sorry, just talking about that, right? It's not going to really work if Commonwealth Bank shift the investment colonial first state plus the advice sort of dealer groups into a separate entity, that's not going to work because they'll still be vertically integrated. So the question will become, will anyone buy that stock mm. <laughs> under those circumstances? I think I think there is a bit more work for them to do around what mm. that might look like. Um, and they may not be able to do it until after the Royal Commission because they may not know how laws will change. Mm. Um, um, one of the things that's especially in you know in our business which is a new business um, uh, when you're thinking about where to invest in the business um, the uncertainty of not knowing how the laws will change really kind of puts the brakes on things well I mean, so, yeah well that led me through to the next one which is the grandfather commission so for our listeners um, in the past traditionally up until a number of years ago a lot of uh, when advisors recommended investment products for clients, those investments had a certain cost ratio, be that you know, one and a half or two percent, for example, which effectively was deducted and paid straight to the investment manager, and the investment manager in turn uh, paid a portion of that as a commission back to the financial advisor, as long as the product was in place. So that was a very, very common way, you know, the most common way of, of advisors, you know, being remunerated for their advice. Uh, when the fo- when the new uh, FOFA regulations came in about five years ago, they said they're banning all of that going forward, but they'd grandfather any old existing uh, arrangements. Now it looks like those, you know, that grandfathering, uh, it's sort of been pinned on as being the root of all evils, I think responsible for, you know, World War One, World War Two, Hiroshima and everything. Um <laughs> But in any event, it looks like those grandfathered commissions are going to go. And there are a lot of businesses, you know, that have got a lot of their revenue tied up in those old grandfathered commissions. And if that goes, which it's going to, I just think it's going to be mayhem, unfortunately. I mean, if we, you know, for those that survive it, you know, they'll do well. But I reckon it's going to be, you know, for a lot of those firms, it's going to be big trouble. Well, let's talk about the biggest one, uh, under which there are a lot of, Separate financial advice businesses, mm. but uh, A&P, yeah. uh, the, the bulk of, not the bulk, I won't say the bulk, I read, a, I read a, an analyst report on the potential impact to A&P if grandfathering mm. was turned off, and they said the analyst estimate was that it might be $250 million of revenue per mm. annum. Um, but is that to so A&P or to the advisors? That's to A&P. Mm. Um, well, it's... Yeah, no, I don't sorry, care about A&P so much. I, I do care about... You know, these other advice businesses, and I get that, you know, obviously commissions are out now, but I do feel for some of them. Because I think well, that. Well, the, if, 
take the businesses that operate under AMP to service those clients, mm. that is turning off their revenue, right? So mm. their, their model is built on servicing clients in this structure, mm. and yeah, the, um, the revenue for those for those uh, for those clients might be turned off. Um, it's a hard one, right? Because uh, the new, there's going to be a new world, and the, the the laws under which we operate under that new world will change, and we don't exactly know what they're going to look like. But if you assume this is true, that those get turned off, there will be a bunch of people whose businesses won't, won't survive. Well, I think a bunch is probably understating it. Yeah, I reckon yeah. there's going to be uh, there's going to be massive numbers of it. For right or wrong, you've got to remember this model where. Um, uh, you give investment advice to a client and that client's investments pay a small return to the advisor over a period of time. This is this, this model's been around for, for decades. Mm. So um, uh, I know that we've moved away from it, but that, that, has, that was the old world and the old model. So mm. um, businesses that built their company on that model, yeah, it's tough. That's right. But I guess the thing is, and the point is, is that when they put that grandfathering in, which, mind you, was supported by both sides of politics, um, was supported by both in the grandfathering. I think they assumed that this kind of thing was going to just whittle away over time, um, but it hasn't as quickly as I wonder, and people are still, you know, businesses yeah. and, and, and licenses are still living off these commissions sort of five years later. So I think that, um, you know, they were under the impression that it was going to, it was going to die by itself a slow death or a relatively quick death, and it just hasn't. So, yeah, and I guess, look, the other concern is, yeah, that there's going to be increased compliance, but I guess we've touched on that already, um, that, you know, providing advice is going to get harder. But having said that, I do think, uh, you know, I don't know how you guys think about for your business. I mean, I do I do still feel like, like you know, I'm going to be a survivor through all this for sure, and I think there's going to be a lot less competition out there. I think there's going to be a lot less people going to the banks for advice. Uh, I think the market's going to shrink to some extent of advisors, and I know that yeah, there's a possibility that that people will still be uh, scared at to go and get advice, but there's still always a portion of the population that is going to need financial advice and is going to you know want to find a trusted person. And I think that uh, you know business models might have to change a bit, but I think there's going to be plenty of work out there. Yeah, I guess I, I I kind of I kind of think think in similar ways. I like the idea of um, business models changing because our business is um, it's fairly young, so we're we're flexible. Uh, we can take advantage of things like you said. If there's less people to support um, advice in the industry, then that kind of makes sense for us. But if you if you bring it back down to if you're doing if you're giving I'm going to say giving good advice, but if you're helping people, um, your business model can always be sustainable. So if you're really giving value to clients and you're helping them and they're making changes in their life because of what you're advising them around, mm. then I think your business will definitely survive. There's, yeah. there's, no, there's no doubt. I do worry that we will create an industry that can only give advice to people with money. Mm. Um, that's a primary concern of mine today before the Royal Commission, um, and it's not an easy one to solve. Um, the other thing that I think will happen is that because... There'll be people leaving the industry, and and they generally will be older advisors who've been on, you know, the businesses have been in, in a different model, um, and I think it's going to be more difficult for younger advisors. The, the bar is going to be set higher for younger advisors. There's going to be a period of 
contraction in the number of islands in mm. the industry. Oh, there um, definitely will that's, be. That's also, you know, potentially going to uh, kind of raise costs for people. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting probably four or five years, I reckon, to see how it all pans out. Yeah, yeah. All right, Michael, look, thanks very much for the chat. Always good to catch up. I know it was a last-minute thing to get you on the phone today, but uh, always enjoy chatting with you, whether it's online or offline. So um, I'll thank you, and we'll sign off now. All right, Ruben, thank you. It's been good to chat with you as well. We'll speak to you next time. Thanks, Michael. Okay, well, that's the end of our show for today. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, You can search previous uh, podcasts on my uh, website, adaptwealth.com.au, or search the Finance Hour on iTunes. Thanks very much for listening.